This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the first podcast for Chapter 6 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast will cover Section 6.1, the Inertia Tensor. The other two sections in this chapter will be the subjects of their own podcasts. As was the case for Chapter 3, Chapter 6 is an application chapter, which means there's already a fair amount of detailed explanations here. So in the podcast, what I'll try to do, rather than repeating a lot of that, is simply to hit those areas that I think might need a little additional explanation. This section, 6.1, starts out on page 159 with an analogy between mass and moment of inertia. It says in that first paragraph that mass is the characteristic of matter that resists acceleration. As you probably learned if you took any physics at all, if you want to change the velocity of an object, either its speed or its direction, you need to apply a force to that object. And it's the object's mass that resists that force. Well, there's an analogy for that for rotational motion. If you have an object that's spinning, it will tend to remain spinning at the same rate and in the same direction unless there's a torque applied to it. That characteristic of matter by which it attempts to resist angular acceleration, that is change in its spin rate or direction, is called the moment of inertia of the object. So in translational motion, mass resists acceleration and you need a force to cause acceleration. In rotational motion, moment of inertia resists angular acceleration and you need a torque if you want to produce a change in the object's angular velocity. The last paragraph on the bottom of page 159 just talks about these analogies between translational motion, where you have position, velocity, and acceleration, and rotational motion, where you have the angle, angular velocity, angular acceleration. Likewise, it draws an analogy between force and torque, mass and moment of inertia, and momentum and angular momentum. At the top of page 160, there's a paragraph that reminds you not only are there analogies between quantities between translational and rotational motion, there are also analogies in relations, such as force equals mass times acceleration, or if you prefer, force is equal to the change in momentum with time. The analogy for that is that torque is equal to I alpha, because I is the equivalent of M and alpha is the equivalent of A in rotational motion. Again, if you prefer the more general approach, you could say torque is equal to DLDT, change in angular momentum with time. That's in a footnote on the bottom of page 160. But depending on how far your physics studies have gone, you may have noticed one area in which the analogy between translational and rotational motion is a little more complex than in other areas. And that has to do with momentum, where the vector momentum P is equal to M times the vector velocity V in translational motion. But the equivalent that you probably learned for rotational motion is the equation at the end of the first paragraph on the top of page 160, which is that L sub Z, that is one component of angular momentum, is equal to I omega. So whereas the linear momentum equation involved vectors, this equation involves a component and apparently scalars. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that when first presenting concepts of rotational motion, many authors in textbooks restrict the motion. They say we're going to deal with planar rotation or maybe a single particle in uniform circular motion. And there are good reasons for doing that because many students struggle enough with those concepts rather than dealing with the more general case. And if you've studied from books that have used that approach, you may have learned that the relationship between v and omega is v equals omega r, oftentimes v the velocity written as a scalar, as are both omega and r. 
Well, if that's true, you can see the relations in the middle of the second paragraph on page 160, which says that LZ is equal to MVR, and if you plug in omega R for V, you get that LZ is MR squared omega, and your book may have then said MR squared is defined as the moment of inertia of a single particle, so therefore we could write L sub Z is equal to I omega. And that is perfectly correct as long as the particle is circling around the z-axis. But as it says in the next paragraph, that equation really has limited application because of the restriction to planar motion. If you want to do the more general case, you have to begin with an equation like 6.1 in the middle of page 160, which says that v, the vector velocity, is equal to omega cross r, where omega is the vector angular velocity and r is the vector position of the object. Likewise, the full vector angular momentum, L, you can see in equation 6.2, is actually defined as R cross P, the position vector crossed into the momentum vector. And if you plug in MV for P, that is for the momentum, you get the last equation in that little group of 6.2, which says that L, the angular momentum vector, is MR cross V. So 6.1 and 6.2 are going to allow us to treat the general case that is not restricted to individual particles or planar motion. Before getting into that, the last paragraph on page 160 does remind you that when you think about the analogy between mass and moment of inertia, you really have to be a little careful because the moment of inertia, even of a single particle, it's written there as I subparticle, is mR squared. Well, if this is analogous to mass, it's curious that mass is already in there. But what I want to point out is that there's something else in there, and that's that R squared. In other words, the resistance to angular acceleration depends not only on the mass of the object, but where that mass is located, that's in the r-squared term. And that general idea, that moment of inertia, is going to depend not only on mass, but on position as well, is very important in the general case, just as it was in the single particle planar motion case. On the top of page 161, there's a paragraph that says, if you think about the vector relation P is equal to MV, and imagine what the analogy might be in rotational motion, you might be tempted to write L, the vector, is equal to I omega. Because we said L is analogous to P, I is analogous to M, and omega is analogous to V. Well, think about that. L is a vector, omega is a vector, and I is a scalar. But you know from chapter 1 that a scalar cannot change the direction of the vector. Oh, it can if it's negative. It can flip at 180 degrees. But in general, if this is the proper equation and I is a scalar, then L and omega must always be in the same direction. And if you look down at figure 6-1, you can see a case where that's clearly not true. In this figure, there's a particle. There's really only one particle, although it's shown at two different points in time, so you might think there's two m's there, but there's really only one. And it starts off over on the left. This particle is circulating around the z-axis. It's coming out of the page on the left. That's what that little dot within the circle below the m is supposed to tell you. Our initial is the position vector from the origin to the mass at the initial instant. And notice that if we apply equation 6.2, that angular momentum L is mR cross V, you can cross that R position vector into the velocity. We know that the velocity is out of the page at that point, so you have to imagine using your right hand, your palm will be facing you, pushing that R vector into the V vector coming out of the page. Your right thumb is going to point up and to the right, just as is shown L initial. So the angular momentum at that instant in time when the particle is there is up and to the right. Now imagine that the particle has circled around. It's now on the right side of the z-axis, and it's going directly into the page. That's what that cross inside the circle means. 
So V is directly into the page. R later is that dashed line from the origin to M. And when you use your right hand, now you're looking at the back of your hand, to push R into V, you'll notice your right thumb is pointing up and to the left. So L later is M R later cross V later, which is in a different direction from the direction of L initial. But omega is straight up the z-axis. This particle is making a circle around the z-axis. And remember how omega works. You wrap the fingers of your right hand in the direction of the circle, and your thumb shows you the direction of omega. So therefore, omega is straight up the z-axis, but the angular momentum is not totally in the z-direction. As a matter of fact, it's changing with time. So now, look back at that equation. The vector L is equal to I, a scalar, times omega, a vector. That cannot be true in this case. Well, it's not true as written there. But as you can see on page 162, it is true if instead of considering I to be a scalar, you think of it as a tensor. Because one of the things that tensors do is that they take in a vector and they produce a vector potentially in a different direction. That's exactly what we need here. We need something that we can multiply by omega that will give us an angular momentum in a different direction. So the middle paragraph on page 162 is all about the fact that in this case, you can see that I cannot be the simple scalar you may have learned about when you learned LZ is equal to I omega. Then there's a little discussion about the fact that you might think, yes, but if I really did put another mass m on the exact opposite side of the z-axis, so m at the initial time in figure 6-1 and m at the later time, if those really were two individual particles, then at any instant the angular momentum of one would be up and to the right, the angular momentum of the other would be up and to the left, and there would still be a net angular momentum, but the horizontal components, that is, those along the y or minus y direction, would cancel and you'd be left with the vertical part, that is the part along the positive z-axis, exactly the same direction as omega. And that's an important concept that you want to file away. If you had made this object symmetric, then this issue of the angular momentum not pointing along the omega direction would no longer be true. But if you have only one particle, that is if it's asymmetric about the z-axis, then L and omega are not generally in the same direction. We're going to deal with the more complicated object later, and we'll explore that relationship. But for now, you should look at equation 6.3 near the bottom of page 162, which says that the vector L is equal to the tensor I. The double arrows mean it's a tensor times the vector omega. It's fairly straightforward to see what that tensor I must be. You can do that by starting with the definition for L, that is R cross P, plug in MV for the momentum, move the M to the front, and you get MR cross V. But you know that V is omega cross R, so when you plug that in, you get the last expression on the bottom of page 162, which is MR cross the quantity omega cross R. Hmm, double cross product. Way back in chapter 2, section 2.4, you may have read about the back minus cab rule for when you have double cross products. If you apply that in this case, you get the expression on the top of page 163, which says the angular momentum is m times the quantity omega, a vector, times a scalar, r dot r is a scalar, minus r, a vector, times another scalar, r dot omega. Well, that's fine for an individual particle, but what if you've got an object that is extended in space? 
the easiest approach to that is to consider it to be made up of individual particles and simply to write this expression for every one of those particles. If you do that, you get expression 6.4, which says that L is the sum over I. Now, when you see the I subscript in various terms in this equation, remember, this is not a component subscript. It is counting the individual masses. So there's an M sub I, that is each mass. There's an R sub I, the position of each mass. But we don't have to write omega sub I because this is a rigid object, which means all the particles share the same omega. That is, they're all rotating with the same angular velocity. The object is not deforming as it rotates. So expression 6.4 is the expression for angular momentum, but it's still not very easy to see the inertia tensor there because we want L equals I omega, and omega is in two different terms here. But that's relatively easy to fix, as it says in the middle paragraph on page 163. You simply write R, the position vector, for the ith particle as x of the ith particle times i hat plus y of the ith particle times j hat plus z of the ith particle times k hat. Likewise, you expand omega into its components and you get the expression shown after that paragraph in which these dot products are very easy to do and you get an expression that says L is equal to the sum of m sub i times the quantity omega times xi squared plus yi squared plus zi squared minus r sub i times x sub i omega x plus y sub i omega y plus z sub i omega z. That's a vector equation. Vector on the left, vectors on the right. But it's easy to see the moment of inertia tensor if you look at the components of this. So first, we're going to look at the x component of L, and that's in the next line. You know that the x component of omega is omega sub x, and the x component of r sub i, that is the ith position vector, is just x sub i. So when you plug those in, you get L sub x as written near the bottom of page 163. And you can do the same thing for L sub y and L sub z, or if you want to write these all in one equation, it's at the top of page 164. There is the matrix equation showing a column vector Lx, Ly, Lz, a big matrix in the middle, and then omega xyz on the right. That's equation 6.5. And this is the equation through which we're going to define the components of the inertia tensor. Remember, a matrix is not a tensor. A matrix shows you the components of the tensor, and those nine expressions in that big middle matrix of equation 6.5 are the components of the inertia tensor. By the way, notice the dimensions work out just as you may have learned for the scalar moment of inertia, which is mass times distance squared. If you're using SI unit, that comes out kilograms times meters squared, and that's true for every one of these terms. There's a very compact way of writing this using the Kronecker delta function, delta sub AB. Remember, that has a value of 1 when A equals B and a value of 0 when A and B are not the same, and that equation is written on page 164 as well. Little terminology, if you'll notice, the diagonal elements of the matrix representing the inertia tensor have similar structure. Those are in fact called the moments of inertia. The off-diagonal elements also have similar structure to each other, but somewhat different from the diagonal elements. Those are called the products of inertia. So moments of inertia down the diagonal, products of inertia in the off-diagonal elements. You may be wondering what the components of the inertia tensor tell you. Well, you know by the definition of a tensor that multiple directions are involved. And that makes sense here, because the angular momentum has a direction, and the rotation has a direction. That is, there may be different axes of rotation, and rotation about those axes can produce angular momentum in various directions. This is easiest for me to think about in the XYZ Cartesian coordinate system. 
I sub 1, 1, the upper left, first row, first column element of the matrix representing the inertia tensor. That's I sub xx. And what that's telling you is how much angular momentum is produced by this object in the x direction due to rotation about the x-axis. In other words, the first subscript tells you which component of the angular momentum you're looking at, and the second subscript tells you which axis of rotation you're considering. So another example given on page 164 says I sub 2, 3. Second row, third column, which is I sub YZ, tells you how much angular momentum is produced in the Y direction due to rotation about the Z axis. If it seems unusual that you can produce angular momentum in the Y direction by rotation about the Z axis, hang on to that. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, a little more consideration to the diagonal elements where the indices are the same, IXX, IYY, and IZZ. Take a look at the first one of those, the upper left element of the matrix, and you see that for each mass, the mass is multiplied by its y-coordinate squared plus its z-coordinate squared. Well, what are those? Those added together are just the square of the distance of that mass from the x-axis. If you're having trouble seeing that, try looking at figure 6.2 on the bottom of page 165, and you should be able to convince yourself that for any given mass, its y-coordinate squared plus its z-coordinate squared add up to give you the square of the distance from the x-axis. Likewise, the middle element of the matrix, i sub 2, 2, or i sub y, y, involves the mass times x squared plus z squared for each mass. That's the square of the distance of that mass from the y-axis. And the lower right element of the matrix, i sub 3, 3, or i sub z, z, has the mass multiplied by x squared plus y squared for that mass. That's the distance from the z-axis. So in each case, we're taking the mass times the distance from an axis squared. Well, that's just like what you may have originally learned for moment of inertia of a single particle. I is equal to mr squared for planar motion, where r is just the distance from the axis of rotation to the particle. So these diagonal elements should be somewhat familiar to you if you've studied moment of inertia for the planar case. Now, if you look at the off-diagonal elements, they look somewhat different. The interpretation of the subscripts is still the same. For example, I sub 2, 3, or I sub Y, Z, tells you the contribution to the Y component of angular momentum that's caused by rotation about the Z axis. Why should Z axis rotation produce Y component of angular momentum? Well, just think back to figure 6, 1. Remember, when we had an asymmetric distribution, that is just one particle, we saw that the angular momentum was not in the same direction as omega, in that case up the z-axis. It also had a y-component. When the particle was on the right side of the axis, it had a negative y-component. So that was a case of rotation about the z-axis producing a y-component of angular momentum. But of course, that y-component goes away if you put an identical particle on the other side, so you now have symmetry about that axis. So these off-diagonal elements are coming from the asymmetries in the mass distribution. All of this becomes a lot easier to understand if you actually consider examples, which is what the rest of this section is dedicated to. Starting in the middle of page 165, you'll see that we're going to deal with an object shown in figure 6.2 that has five point masses. Four of them are in the xy plane. One of them, m5, is sticking above the plane at a height that is the distance from the plane, 2a, that is the same as the distance between the particles within the plane. You can see that that distance is also 2a. 
So the coordinates of each of these masses is shown in the figure, and we're going to write out the elements of the inertia tensor simply by plugging in those coordinates. That's done on page 165 for i sub xx. There you see it's m1 times its y coordinate squared plus z coordinate squared plus m2 times its y coordinate squared plus z coordinate squared, and so on for m3 and m4 and m5. And when you plug in those coordinates and assume that each mass is the same, you get a total of 8m times a squared, where again, a is half the distance between the masses in the plane. You can do the same process for i sub yy and i sub zz. You'll get the same answer, 8ma squared. If you then look to the off-diagonal elements, the math is a little different, but when you plug in m1, x1, y1, and m2, x2, y2, as is shown at the top of page 166, and add all those up, you get 0 for i sub xy. You'll find the same thing for i sub xz and i sub yz. So the matrix representing the moment of inertia tensor is shown in the middle of page 166 as a diagonal matrix with 8ma squared for each of the diagonal elements and zeros for each of the off-diagonal elements. And the matrix representing moment of inertia tensor that looks like this is full of information. And that information is described in the middle paragraph on page 166. It tells you that since the off-diagonal elements are all zero, we have found the principal axes of the object. And that means that the moments of inertia that we get on the diagonal are the principal moments for that object. That means that whenever you rotate about one of those principal axes, the angular momentum vector and the angular velocity vector are always going to be parallel. That just tells you something about the object's symmetry. And the fact that all three of these principal moments are equal tells you that you can consider this object to be a spherical top. As it notes in the parenthetical comment, in mechanics the word top simply means a rigid rotating object. And for a spherical top, all of the principal moments are the same, and any three orthogonal axes are principal axes. It can often help your understanding to take an object like this and change something about it and see the effect on the inertia tensor. So on the bottom of page 166, you'll see what happens when you take the mass m5 and move it to twice its original height above the xy plane. It originally was 2a above the xy plane, now it's going to be 4a above. If you do that and recompute the moment of inertia tensor, you'll find that in this case, the inertia tensor is still diagonal. There are still zeros in all the off-diagonal elements, but I sub xx and I sub yy are the same and bigger than I sub zz. That should make some sense to you, because moving m5 up the z-axis puts it farther away from the x and y axes, so it's going to contribute a greater moment of inertia for rotation about those axes than in the original case, since it's farther away from them. But for rotation about the z-axis, m5 doesn't contribute at all, because it's on the z-axis. So no matter where you put it on the z-axis, it doesn't contribute to rotation about the z-axis, and the 8ma squared there is the same moment of inertia that you got in the previous case. That comes only from m1 through m4, which do have some distance from the z-axis. So this thing is no longer a spherical top, but what we can call it is a symmetric top because two of the three principal moments are the same. Another thing you might try instead of just changing the distance is to change the mass. So if m5 instead of having mass m has mass 2m, but you leave the other masses at m, you get the matrix for the inertia tensor shown on the top of page 167. Once again, m5 is not contributing to i sub zz, so it remains 8ma squared, but it does contribute to i sub xx and i sub yy, and those are bigger because we've increased the mass.
Another instructive thing to do is to try rotating the coordinate axes and seeing what effect that has on the moment of inertia tensor. That process and the results occupy the next few pages of this section. As you can see, starting in the middle of page 167, the rotation I applied is about the x-axis, and I rotated the axes 30 degrees. You can see this in figure 6.3 at the bottom of page 167, where we're looking down the x-axis toward the origin, and you can see that the y-axis, which I now label the y-prime axis, is tilted 30 degrees, and the z-prime axis has also tilted 30 degrees. So I've just applied a rigid 30-degree rotation to the coordinate axes about the x-axis. In the B part of the figure, I just turned the axes so that the z-prime axis is vertical and the y-prime axis is horizontal, and now it looks as though the object itself has tilted. So if you want to know what effect this has on the inertia tensor, it's pretty easy. You simply have to find the coordinates of each of the masses in the new coordinate system and go through the exact process we've been doing previously. You can find those coordinates using geometrical considerations, but a very straightforward way to do it is to use a rotation matrix. And that's shown on the top of page 168 in equation 6.6. .6. This is a rotation matrix for a rotation through an angle theta counterclockwise around the x-axis. So if you want to know the x prime, y prime, z prime coordinates, you simply take the original x, y, z coordinates and multiply them by this matrix. When you do that and plug those new coordinates into the equation for the inertia tensor, you get the inertia tensor shown near the top of page 168, which is again 8ma squared for each of the diagonal elements and 0 for each of the off-diagonal elements. Well, of course you did. As we said, this object is a spherical top, which means that any set of three coordinate axes are principal axes, and you should get the same moment of inertia tensor for those. On the other hand, if you look at figure 6.3b and look specifically at M5, it might seem logical that for rotation about the z prime axis, it would produce a y component, or specifically a minus y component of angular momentum, exactly as the single mass did way back in figure 6.1. So where is that component of angular momentum? The off-diagonal terms are all zero here. And if you want to see what contribution M5 does make to the inertia tensor, one easy way to do that is to set each of the other masses to zero and then look at the inertia tensor just produced by M5. I did that toward the bottom of page 168, and there's the inertia tensor from M5 alone for this tilted coordinate axis case. And as you see, the off-diagonal elements, I sub YZ and I sub ZY, are in fact not zero. So how is it that when we had the entire object with all five masses, we got zeros for the off-diagonal elements, and now we don't? Clearly, those other four masses also have a contribution to make. And if you want to see what that contribution is, you can set M5 to zero and set M1 through M4 equal to M. I did that, and at the very bottom of page 168, you see the result. And look at the off-diagonal elements. They are positive 1.73, which is exactly the additive inverse of the M5 contribution, which means when you add these moment of inertia tensors together, you're going to get zero for the off-diagonal elements. I thought it might help to see this graphically, so if you look on the top of page 169 at figure 6.4, there you see that M5 does produce what I call L5, that is the contribution to the total angular momentum just from M5, and in fact it's going up and left. Again, if you take R5 cross V5, that's the direction you get. But 
look at the other masses. M1 and M4 are shown there. Of course, you have to remember there's M2 and M3 also. But just do the R cross V in each of those cases, and you'll see the angular momentum is pointing up and to the right, and it's a little smaller. When you add those four together, you find it exactly compensates for the Y component of L5, and the off-diagonal elements do in fact turn out to be zero. So if things are just perfectly balanced in the case of the original relative distances of the masses, we should be able to throw that balance off by moving M5, again, farther from the plane of the other four masses. And that's done at the bottom of page 169. M5 has moved up to twice its original height. When you do the inertia tensor with the rotated axes for that case, you find the off-diagonal elements are no longer zero because the four masses M1 through M4 can no longer compensate for the Y component of angular momentum produced by M5. This process of rotating the coordinate axes lets you determine the inertia tensor for any orientation of the axes because you can apply the rotation matrix repeatedly. So at the bottom of page 169, I talk about what happens if you rotate first by angle theta 1 about the x-axis and then by angle theta 2 about the y-axis. Those two rotation matrices are shown together at the top of page 170 where the new x prime, y prime, z prime coordinates are going to be simply the product of those matrices times the column vector x, y, z. That is equation 6.7. If you do 30 degrees for both theta 1 and theta 2, work out the cosines and sines, do the matrix multiply, you get equation 6.8. And when you use that to determine the x prime, y prime, z prime coordinates and recalculate the inertia tensor, you get the value shown in equation 6.9. Notice in this case, I left M5 at its double height, and therefore the off-diagonal elements are not zero. The last few paragraphs of this section talk about an alternative approach to finding the inertia tensor for the rotated axes that does not involve calculating the new coordinates of each of the masses. And that idea is to use something called a similarity transform to the original inertia tensor. The mathematical logic behind that is shown at the bottom of page 170, where first I've written L is equal to the tensor I times omega, and then I say, okay, if we're going to rotate the coordinates by applying a rotation matrix R, then we're going to call the new angular momentum vector L prime, and that's just going to be R times L, which is going to be R times I omega. Then there's a bit of a trick in which we insert a new factor that works out to be the identity matrix. That is, we take the rotation matrix inverse times the rotation matrix, R inverse times R, which just gives you the identity matrix, and therefore you can drop that in in front of the omega in the previous equation and not change the result. But then when you group the terms differently, you see that you get a quantity that is R times the tensor I times R inverse, that quantity times R omega. But R omega is just omega prime. It's just the rotation matrix applied to omega. So therefore, we get the last equation on page 170, which says the angular momentum in the new coordinate system, L prime, is equal to that quantity, R times I times R inverse, times omega prime, the angular velocity in the new coordinate system. Well, that means that in the new coordinate system, the inertia tensor must be equal to that quantity in parentheses. So we can find the new inertia tensor instead of by calculating the coordinates of each of the masses in the new system, simply by applying the rotation matrix and its inverse to our moment of inertia tensor. That's shown in the middle of page 171. There's the rotation matrix, there's the inertia tensor, 
And there's the inverse of the rotation matrix. When you multiply all those out, you get the inertia tensor that is exactly the same as equation 6.9, which we found by using the rotated coordinates. The last bits of this section just talk about manipulating the matrix into a diagonal form using eigenvectors and eigenvalues, which you can read about on the book's website, and about using visual inspection to take advantage of the symmetries of the object, which are the subject of one of the problems at the end of the chapter. So once again, I encourage you to work through those problems, and if you need help, use the online solutions.